All right, well, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Mark as we continue here in our series. If you're just joining us today, we're I've been in a, a series here in the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, second book of the New Testament, and we'll be finishing chapter 5 today, Mark chapter 5. Our focus will be really on uh, verses 35 through uh, 43, but I want, I want you to get the whole context just as last week uh, read a little bit more, so I'm actually going to start reading here in verse 21, Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21 and then going through the end of the chapter. If you're able to, please stand as I read. Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And the great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithi kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Join with me in prayer. Great God and Heavenly Father, we come to you and pray again. And I certainly pray, oh God, not out of habit, but out of a real sense of need. So I need your help, O Lord, to preach your word. I don't want to rely on past experience or past graces or even past habits. I need your Holy Spirit. And we, your people, don't want to rely on our own human ears. We desperately need ears of faith 
So work by your spirit, I pray, that you would preach mightily to us through your word. That we would be changed, that we would be helped, that we would be equipped, that we would be convicted in the areas of our lives where we need your holy conviction. Have your way with us this morning, O Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, he wrote a very succinct letter that we find almost at the very end of our New Testament. His letter is short in length, but long in depth. Jude wrote during a time of great hardship and suffering, and his letter served to encourage the people of God. His letter really served to encourage the saints of God to be faithful in troubling times, even if the odds were stacked against them. And even if the world was pressing in around them, Jude wrote to some people of God who had some very big problems. And because of this, and over the years, and at least in in various Christian traditions, Jude has become known as the patron saint of lost causes. Lost causes have attracted Mark's attention here, in our studies in his letter. Over the last two chapters, Mark has basically given us a working definition of lost causes. It's not just people who face hardships in life. It's not just situations that have no real easy answers. It's not just some bit of suffering or hardship that never just seems to go away. No, lost causes in Mark are people who face impossible circumstances. Impossible circumstances that are completely beyond their control and beyond their ability to do anything. And so Mark has been holding up a billboard, if you will, on the the side of the road of lost causes that says, Jesus can help. Jesus can save. Jesus can do the impossible. And that's what we've seen here in the last two chapters, haven't we? The disciples were... Well, they were dead on the water, the end of Mark chapter 4, until Jesus intervened. The hopelessly troubled man afflicted with thousands of demons, well, he was a lost cause before Jesus drove those demons out of him. Last week, we encountered a suffering woman who had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, and she had gone to every doctor known around, and she had tried to find a cure, but there was no cure until she actually heard a report about Jesus. And she reached out and she touched his garment. Lost causes and lost people, well, that seems to be a sweet spot of ministry for Jesus, doesn't it? Which I think is very good news for every one of us here today. I think if we're really honest, for most of us, it probably doesn't take too much in the normal course of our days to, at times, feel like, well, we may be that lost cause. I might be that lost person, giving in to temptation. You see it, you know it's coming, but yet you still give in. Maybe it's that. Maybe it is that ongoing struggle with a particular sin. Perhaps it is some bit of unjust suffering, and you just sort of throw your hands up and you think, Lord, I just can't do it anymore. Or maybe it actually is just suffering. You are, in fact, reaping what you have sown, the just consequences of some very poor, sinful decisions. 
church, the good news of the gospel is precisely good news because it's good news for lost people and lost causes. Jude may be known as the patron saint of lost causes, but Jesus is the perfect savior for lost people. And if your faith is in Jesus this morning, then your faith is in the right place. It's not misplaced faith. If your faith is in Jesus this morning, your faith is in the right person. Our text this morning really raises the bar on lost causes and lost people. Mark tells us here about a dead girl and her desperate dad. Now, you already know how this story ends, so I think one of the temptations for us, or maybe for you as you're listening, is to say, well, I get it. The story has a happy ending. There's Jesus again, just being Jesus. Jesus is doing the impossible. I get it. That's what we learned last week. We're learning that this week. What's the punchline? Well, there is no punchline, but we we ought not to read this story or hear this story like that. Because when Jesus, just being Jesus, doing what Jesus does, doing the impossible, gets boring to us. When raising a dead girl to life just seems kind of ho-hum and ordinary, well, that actually does indicate a problem. The problem's not with Jesus, and the problem's not with the Bible, and the problem's not even with me. So who does that leave? The problem may be... The problem is your heart, and perhaps the fickleness of your heart. Yet another miracle from Jesus here may be a rebuke to your cold, distant, unbelieving heart. A heart that says, yeah, I know Jesus, I know, I've seen how you work in other people's lives, uh, but I don't think you can do that in my own. I've seen how you move in my friends' lives, I've heard testimonies, I've read books of how you are on the move and changing and transforming people, but I actually have pretty low expectations for what you're going to do in my life. I just, I don't think you're going to do too much, actually. Maybe I'm more of a lost cause than you think. Well, you're not, but don't take my word for it. Take a longer look at Jesus this morning. So let's, let's kind of lean in here as we see Jesus in action. Now last week we, I think we took a pretty big bite out of our Markin sandwich if you were here. And this morning we're gonna take a few more bites and we're gonna finish that off. There are three scenes in this story here that I really want to highlight for us. Three scenes. Here's the first one, this is scene one. It's really uh, the, the, the lead up to this, verses 21 through 24. Let's call this, this is on the way to the house. On the way to the house of Jairus. Jesus has barely uh, landed here, has swung his legs over the boat, his feet is on dry land, and a man approaches him. In fact, this man, Jairus, comes up and falls down before Jesus. And he falls down before Jesus because he is in absolute desperation. He, he falls down and throws himself at the mercy of Jesus. He's desperate to save his young daughter, verse 23. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now Luke, Luke chapter 8, in his gospel, he tells us that this was his only daughter. And Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, he records it as this. Jairus says to Jesus, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So we've really got 
two lost causes here, don't we? We have a very desperate father and his deceased young only daughter. Now, prior to this encounter, nobody would have looked at Jairus and said, that guy's desperate. Nobody would have looked at Jairus and said, he's probably a bit of a lost cause. In fact, just the opposite. Jairus is a ruler in the synagogue, which means he had a position of immense responsibility. He's in charge of maintaining the facilities. He's in charge of overseeing the teaching, of really organizing worship. Jairus was one of the most important men in his community. And so as a ruler, he had a very visible, prominent position. If you had a problem, you need to go see Jairus. He's the guy that can take care of that. He's a problem solver. He's, he's on the top of the social rung and the status. He's, he's in the in crowd. He's got money. He's got power. He's got notoriety. But none of that matters if your only daughter has just died. He can't do anything to save her. Jairus, the synagogue ruler, well, he had power to command and things got done. Jairus, the dad, had no power to save his only daughter's life. That would seem to be the ultimate hopeless situation and the ultimate lost cause. I mean, it it doesn't get any worse than dead. And so here we have Jairus, one important man, falling down in front of an even more important man, Jesus of Nazareth, because he believes that Jesus and only Jesus can do what only Jesus can do. He can do what no one else can do. Jesus can actually bring his daughter back to life. And so at this point in the story, we either are saying, Jairus either is delusional Maybe he's crazy, maybe he's so filled with grief and despair, he's living in denial, he's not really making any sense at all, or this is is a pretty bold act of faith. This is an expression of faith in Jesus. Now, it's not a fully orbed faith. We wouldn't say it's even perfect faith. It's not like at this point Jairus has counted the cost of following Jesus. No, he's still a prominent leader in the Jewish synagogue. So Jairus is not going to be teaching an adult Sunday school class anytime soon at GCF Nazareth. But he comes in faith to Jesus, with enough faith, as we talked about last week, that that if maybe, if if he can just get Jesus in front of his daughter, then maybe Jesus can actually do the impossible. Maybe Jesus can actually rescue her. So he's got enough faith to say, I'm desperate, I'm out of options. Jesus, you're the only one I can turn to right now. That's that's faith. It's faith in the right person. That's that's faith in Jesus. That's not misplaced faith at all. Now, as as a dad, as a father, I get that for as much as I can understand the awful predicament that Jairus is in. And obviously, for you dads out here, especially on this Father's Day, you... You can understand his father's heart as well. I mean, you don't have to be up for father of the year today to sympathize with Jairus and to be thinking about, you know, if that was my only daughter, I'd be doing the same thing and maybe even more. That's what normal, ordinary dads would would do given the circumstances. So what is Jairus actually doing here? 
What is Jairus the dad, the father? What's he really attempting to do for his only daughter? He's doing everything he can do to get Jesus to his daughter. He's doing everything he can do to get Jesus in front of his daughter. And dads, that's faith. That's faith in action. Your daughter or children may not be deathly ill today. Praise God for that. But our task as fathers really remains the same. Do everything you can do short of sinning to get Jesus in front of your children. To get Jesus in front of their faces and on their hearts. That's the the wonderful privilege, the, the awesome responsibility that we as dads have. And that task, dads, no doubt requires faith. Bold faith. Faith in Jesus. So there's an encouragement here for us dads. There's also probably several challenges. First, the encouragement. Let me encourage you dads here. I know many of you are doing exactly this. You are seeking to be faithful in helping your children see Jesus and meet Jesus and know Jesus and love Jesus as the the greatest treasure of their lives. So don't give up. and Don't lose hope even when the days are hard and they can be. The Lord is still at work. Dads, he sees your heavenly father, dads, sees all of your attempts, the big and the small ways, and even the failures. God is so good and kind as a heavenly father that he can redeem even what you may think, dad, is your worst failure. He's so good and kind that he can redeem that and bring good out of that for your family and for your kids. So continue to sow the seed of the gospel. And trust the Lord for the timing and the results. And the challenge. Putting Christ in front of your children faithfully day in and day out. Well, that oftentimes requires faith that you may think, I don't really have. That requires a growing faith, an expansion of faith and humility. It takes a growing and deepening faith in Jesus to say, Dad, you know what, I want to be the chief servant in my home this week. I want to love my wife sacrificially and, and care well for my children faithfully. That's going to require faith and humility. I think as a dad, one of the more humbling things that we dads can do is to go to one of our kids that we have royally sinned against you don't even have to royally sin against them you just have to sin and you go to them and you say I was wrong forgive me right now your dad needs Jesus probably way more than you do in this very moment but God honors that dads takes growing and deepening faith and trust in Jesus to be able to say as a family we're, we're going to come we're going to make corporate worship a priority why? Not just because it's important and we, we know we're supposed to do that, but, but because we want to build our life around worshiping God. That's the, the regular rhythm and pattern. And so, so, dads, yes, you worship every Sunday when you bring your family here before an audience of one, that is the Lord. But your children are paying attention. And they know. 
it's really hard to fool kids. They're smart. And they know, Dad, if you're here because you're kind of just putting in time. Or they know if you're here and you're excited about being here. You're, you're actually thankful that the Lord has brought you here. And on the way, you're saying, what a, what a gift this is to come and worship with God's people. And your children look at you and you're singing and you're engaged in worship and you're participating. You don't even have to sing on key. What a great example to your kids, to your family. It takes that kind of growing and deepening faith and humility to, to talk to your kids informally and formally about Jesus, that they would know then, Dad, what you are passionate on. I'm supremely convicted on this point. You realize, Dad, you, you really don't even have to say, kids, here's what I'm passionate about. Your kids already know that. You know what you spend time doing. They're watching. Are you really passionate about Jesus? And so there's a, a, a spot here, dads, for honest, genuine repentance as well. It's the Lord's kindness, your Heavenly Father's kindness to lead you to repentance. That maybe there are, no doubt, there are secondary passions and pleasures and desires that get in the way of you bringing Jesus to your kids. Dads, hear, hear me. Jesus loves to minister to dads who know of their great need for him. That's Jairus. He knows. He doesn't have any hope apart from Jesus intervening. He is a lost cause without Jesus. So dads, one of the, one of the best things that we can do to bring Jesus to our kids is to ask the Lord to grow us in faith and so that we would never lose sight of our need for Jesus. I, I hope that's your heart this morning as it is mine. Jairus says to Jesus, you've got to come to my house. In fact, I'm not leaving here, Jesus, until you do. My daughter has died, and you're the only one who can bring her to life. That's faith. Faith says, I'm going to do everything I can do to get Jesus in front of my kids. And the good news for Jairus is that Jesus agrees. And so we have, this is really moving to the second scene now. This is outside of the house of Jairus, I think Jairus has a little bit more hope now that Jesus is going to intervene. Scene two, right outside his house. Let me read verses 35 through 38. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, that is Jairus. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Jairus had just come to Jesus with the greatest crisis of his life. His 12-year-old daughter is as good as dead. But Jesus appears to be in not much of a hurry. I mean, Jesus could have been there sooner. But he's stopped to care for this woman who was bleeding for 12 years. And now he's somewhere in that crowd. He's, he's serving that woman. He's ministering to that woman. Dad, just let's be honest here. Wouldn't that drive you nuts? Wouldn't that frustrate you? You'd be ticked at Jesus. I mean, Jesus, come on. I'm, are you going to do it or not? Can I trust you or not? I mean, that woman, she's been hemorrhaging for, for 12 years. What's another 30 minutes, Lord? That 30 minutes may make all the difference between life and death for my only daughter. 
it seemed too late for his daughter. And that's what many outside of his house were, were telling him. That's the narrative, verse 35, in fact, to Jesus. Uh, don't bother, Lord. It actually is too late. We've done the autopsy. We're skilled at this. We're smarter than you are. Don't bother coming in. It's too late. She's already dead. And here's the real test of faith for this dad. Here's the test of faith for Jairus. Who's he going to listen to? And who does he really believe Jesus is? Because if he just listens to those that are murmuring in the crowd, the so-called experts, well, there's really nothing more. This text actually should end here. His daughter's dead. The end. It'd be tragic. I mean, is Jesus just another good teacher along the lines of many other teachers? But he's not really a savior, so he can't really do anything about this young girl who just died. Or does Jairus actually, does he actually put his faith in, in a savior who actually has power to save? In, in a Jesus who has power and authority that nobody else has. So Jairus here is facing the worst day of his life. His friends are confirming that this is the worst day of his life. Yes, your daughter is dead, telling him it's too late. And Jesus, well, yeah, this is Jesus being Jesus for all the good reasons. He overhears all this conversation. He, and he steps in, verse, 35, verse 36, excuse me, and he says to Jairus, do not fear. Only believe. And the sense of that in the original language is keep on believing. Keep on trusting. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Keep on believing. So Jesus says to Jairus, look, I know it looks hopeless. I get it. But don't listen to the cynics. Don't be troubled. I'm not distracted or disinterested, nor am I in a hurry. But trust me. Your faith is in the right person Watch what I'm about to do. I mean, how hard must that have been for Jairus in that moment? How hard was that to actually keep his faith in, in Jesus? And not to just pull the chute and say, you know what, I don't think there is anything we can do. The end. But his faith that Jesus could do the impossible, that Jesus could save anybody, it is being tested here. And Jesus, with, with that tenderness that we saw last week and we'll see again this week, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Believe in me. Trust me. That may be exactly what your heart needs today. Don't be afraid. Believe in me. Believe in Jesus. Trust me. Jesus calls Jairus to a deeper when it actually did appear that all hope was lost. And brothers and sisters, he's, he's always calling us to that same deeper faith in him. Do you know that Jesus actually wants you to trust him regardless of whatever hopeless situation you may be dealing with, regardless of how bleak the circumstances in your life may be, or regardless of how good everything is going in your life today? Jesus actually wants you to trust him. Why? because he can be trusted. If your faith is in Jesus, it's not misplaced faith. And here, Jesus calls Jairus to, to believe in him, even 
when everything that Jairus saw and everything that he heard signaled that death had arrived at his door and at his house and in his house this day. And that's why, brothers and sisters, if you read verse 38, there's a whole lot of noise and commotion and weeping and wailing loudly at his house. This ruckus was actually caused by professional mourners. Now, that was actually a thing. That was a real thing in the first century. It was customary that a grieving family would hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman when somebody died. Even the poorest of Israelites, we read in the Mishnah, even the poorest of Israelites who didn't have money to do anything else needed to hire two flute players and one wailing woman. Now, for for Jairus, he's got the means, he's got the money, he's got the power, he's a man of privilege. So, So we can safely assume here that it wasn't just one wailing woman and two flute players. This is probably the size of a small band who is, they're all getting paid, they're professionals, they're doing their job, they're weeping, they're wailing, the instruments are whining. Clearly, they're all there for a funeral. There's there's no professional mourners if you don't have someone who just died. And so if you and I were to approach this house, we would hear this commotion, we would hear this ruckus, we would we would hear the awful sound of death, weeping, wailing, both from grieving friends and family from these professional musicians. I was studying this last week on this, and then I called Becky and said, you know what, I don't, when I die, I don't want you to buy a wailing woman and two flute players. Just let's use that money for the food, (laughs) funeral food. So if you happen to show up to my funeral, enjoy the food. It's such a chaotic scene here. And the real action then leads us to this third and final scene. And everything in this story, brothers and sisters, is leading to this point. Inside the house of Jairus, that's scene three. Let me read verses 39 through 43. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talibi kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Again, All the events of this day leading up to this very climactic point inside the house of Jairus. And I want us just to zoom in just for a few minutes here on the actions of Jesus. Jesus actually does three things here. Number one, he strengthens the faith of Jairus in his moment of great need. He strengthens his faith. Verse 39, Jesus enters the house and tells everybody to stop. Quit with the music. Quit with the wailing and the tumult of you professional mourners. Jesus assures everybody there that this girl is simply sleeping. She's not dead. Now, in the New Testament, sleep is often a euphemism for death. We read that in uh, a passage like 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, I tell you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now in those passages, believers of of Jesus will one day awake to a glorious resurrection life. In this passage here in Mark, Jesus is really using a play on words here. And his play on words here is a rebuke. It's an open rebuke to the professional mourners who think they know more than he does. But it's a word of comfort and encouragement to Jairus. It's Jesus saying to Jairus, if your faith is in, your, your faith is in me, hold on here. It's okay. It's not misplaced. Keep on believing and trusting even when you think it's a lost cause. And even as you look around and you're hearing like, why are all these people here then, Jesus? Why are they all weeping and wailing as if they are at a funeral? And he's saying, look, hold on. There's going to be a resurrection. Here's the second thing Jesus does. Not surprisingly, he throws out the professional musicians and the professional mourners out of the house. They just laughed at what Jesus just said. And the emphasis there, they're ridiculing Jesus. They're scoffing at him. They're saying to Jesus, you know what? This is not our first funeral, Jesus. This is our job. We're getting paid for this. Like, we know when a person is dead, so clearly maybe you're not as smart as all of your followers think you are. Because we actually, this is our territory here. We know what's going on. These professional mourners had zero faith that Jesus could do the impossible. That, that he could actually restore a dead girl to life. Really, the only person we're led to believe in this house that believed that Jesus could save anybody is, is Jairus. Friends, church, don't be a cynic like those professional mourners who really thought that they knew more than Jesus, thought that they were smarter than Jesus. You may be here, you may be older and wiser, and with maturity comes a a temperance, which is a wonderful, wonderful benefit and blessing. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for, for many, many years. Amen and amen. But don't stop hoping, don't stop trusting, don't stop believing that that Jesus can do the impossible. Don't stop believing that Jesus can actually save anybody, that he's got that kind of power, and that there are no lost causes or lost people for him. Regardless of how long you've been walking with Jesus and worshiping Jesus, never never lose sight of your childlike faith. And trust in Jesus. I'm super grateful, especially on a day like this, as I think about my own dad. He's a great guy. And growing up, especially when I was young, I remember, you know, you go through those times as a young boy where you just think, you know, I'm pretty sure my dad can do anything. I'm pretty sure he can. So he can drive a car really fast. He can throw a football really far. He can shoot a hockey puck really hard. He can operate a power tool and not kill anybody he can fix stuff that's broken and maybe you also had a dad like that it wasn't hard to trust my dad it wasn't hard to put faith in him what a huge blessing but but I pretty much grew up thinking yeah my dad can do anything and I'm pretty sure my kids are growing up thinking well my dad tries a lot of stuff but but then he calls friends to come over and really help him and fix it so that's what my dad does he calls friends to come over and help he knows how to call people I'll take it. <laughs> but even the, even the godliest of dads, they're not perfect. We have limitations. We're not Jesus. But your heavenly father can do anything. If you're a Christian, your heavenly father is a good, wise dad. 
He knows exactly how to care for you. He knows exactly the burdens you're carrying. He knows how to take care of you. Your heavenly father has no limitations. He has no weaknesses. He doesn't look at you and say, well, I I don't know what to do with you. You're, You're kind of a lost cause even for me. No, not at all. Brothers and sisters, when when you talk to your heavenly father in prayer, you realize who you're talking to. It's not just some vague higher power. It's not just the big guy in the sky. It's your heavenly father who can do anything. I think it's actually sad. It's actually... It's actually tragic, unfortunately, sometimes we see this. But the longer that you've walked with Jesus, the less you actually believe he can do. The longer that you walk with Jesus, the the lower the expectations that you have for him and even in your own life. God have mercy. I pray that that would not be the case with any of us. That we would would never, never grow out of our childlike faith and trust in our wise heavenly father that childlike faith faith in jesus means this brothers and sisters it means we're not surprised at sometimes how hard life can get and we're also not surprised at how much jesus can actually help that's childlike faith that's where jairus is at this morning and here's the third thing now that jesus does he actually raises jairus's daughter from the dead we all know it Science doesn't lie. Dead people are supposed to stay dead. But Jesus can save anybody. Verse 41, Jesus reaches out, touches this young girl, and says, little girl, arise. And that's exactly what happens. And in reaching out and touching her, her dead body, Jesus, understand, has now become ceremonially unclean. Just as he did last week as we looked at the woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years and reached out and touched his garment. For both of these women, Jesus shared in their death so that he would one day deliver them from death. And that's what we see a bit later on here in Mark. We see Jesus once again sharing in death. But this time it's, it's our death. Jesus would become unclean. He would become cursed on the cross. Why? For our sakes. For, for us to, to bear the, the wrath of God's judgment on his body for our sins. It was our sins that nailed him to the cross. It's the mighty power of God that resurrected our spiritually dead souls and transfer, transferred us and delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. In the gospel, friends, Jesus has made a way for lost people and lost causes such as we all once were to be found, to be forgiven, to be rescued and resurrected. And the the beautiful part of the good news of the gospel is that we don't earn that. Not even on our best day. This is God's gift of grace. Unmerited favor. And in this breathtaking scene here in Mark 5, Jesus just saved a seventh grade girl because of his good, kind grace. Not because she deserved it any more than we do. And not even because Jairus did what he did. 
but we can understand that. In this scene, Jesus heals her by his kind, sovereign power. She gets up, she starts walking around, and yes, we're not surprised that everybody is in amazement. I'm surprised we don't read there that everybody else there died on the spot. And that's kind of a human reaction. But isn't it interesting here, Jesus raises her to life, and then he tells those gathered around her to like, get her something to eat. Verse 43, which actually does make a lot of sense to me. If you died and Jesus just brought you back to life, you're probably kind of hungry. So have something to eat. But Mark reports here that the smallest details. Get her something to eat. Uh, says Jesus, like, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Which again, we might think, well, what? Are you kidding me? This is a game changer. But that, again, ties into the, the, the messianic secret here that we've talked about before where Jesus wants to continue to minister and move freely about and he knows that there's going to be all kinds of people in the crowds who will not see him for who he is. The point here, Mark tells us here that Jesus, or so Mark reports the smallest details here. Why? Well, because Jesus is concerned about the smallest details of your life and of mine. What great compassion, what great tenderness from Jesus this Jesus has ferocious power and a tender heart. Twelve years ago, a woman started bleeding, and Jesus made it stop. Twelve years ago, a girl was born, and Jesus has just raised her from the dead. Well, there are no lost causes for Jesus, but I wonder if you actually really believe that. Do you believe that for yourself? And do you believe that for the people in your life? And I don't know, brothers and sisters, if, if that means that that Jesus is going to bring complete physical healing for you or for your loved ones in this life as he did here. I, I don't know that. But what I do know is that he's never going to turn anyone away who comes to him in faith. That he will give his Holy Spirit freely to those who ask. That his blood actually does make the vilest heart clean. And that his mercy is so much more and all of our sins combined. Evidently, it actually doesn't matter your family, your background, your social status, your income, or even your name for Jesus to love you and to care about you and for him to rescue you. He can save anybody, and he's proven it. Jesus can save both men and women. Now that may be lost on some of us, we read this, but the fact that Jesus was willing to touch and heal these women here in Mark chapter 5 was scandalous in the first century. It's not just that they were women, but they were untouchable. They were unclean. And here Jesus, in simply reaching out and touching them, he's so identifying with them and identifying with all who are unclean and untouchable. What he's really saying is, my kingdom is open to everyone the lost causes, the hopeless, everyone come into my kingdom. Jesus can save anyone. We've seen him do that. He has saved his Jewish disciples. He has saved a suicidal gentle, Gentile full of demons. He saved an unnamed suffering woman without privilege. And he saved here a 12-year-old girl growing up with many privileges. He can rescue a man at the top of the social ladder and he can rescue a woman barely hanging on to the bottom rung. 
He's mighty to save. No one is a lost cause for Jesus. So come to Jesus this morning in faith. Turn to him in faith, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, or no matter what you've left undone this past week. Come to Jesus in faith. And, and, and you may be saying, Lord, I blew it again. I, Lord, I'm not who I thought I was. I'm not who I want to be and who others want me to be. Come to him. Turn to him in faith with your struggles and pain and sufferings. He loves you more than you know. And he is far more powerful than you think. He has that kind of power, brothers and sisters, that kind of resurrection power to heal a marriage, to calm an anxious heart, to start a revival, to regenerate a dead soul. That's faith. And if your faith is in Jesus, it's not misplaced faith. Your faith is in the right person.